Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams. You're listening to the third episode of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, today's episode, I decided to talk about the importance of oral history and tradition and trying to make it all come alive in the age of real-time social media. Uh, the reason why this is something that I decided to speak on today is it's pretty much what I'm dealing with on a daily basis. Okay. So today I just finished giving a tour to a small high school class from a um, charter school in Dorchester. And they're dealing with history, especially history of Boston and the black population and Latino population. And I always talk about the history that most people don't know, even people that live here, and the erasure that happens when you live in a city that doesn't really acknowledge more than the white class or the white population in the city. Like if you look at Boston movies, they basically it basically tells one story or one homogenous story. If you're not Irish or Italian, then you're pretty much screwed. There's never going to be any representation for you. So again, he, the class, I was sought out by the teacher and he said... Uh, could you possibly give us a tour of your neighborhood? I did. I've been giving tours of this neighborhood for years now. So um, I was asked, how is it possible that I gained all this information about the neighborhood? And I pretty much told the teacher in the class that I accrued all this information from being a little kid and being around my parents uh, brother, sister, cousins, older people. And at the time, you know, I was born in the 70s. So it was still in the tail end of the era of children being seen and not heard, where I basically was privy to a whole bunch of information a little kid should know. And being that I was a sponge, it stuck with me. But it stuck with me especially because of the recall gift that I have that I think I talked about it. Uh, around 30 months into my life, I can remember pretty much 80 to 85% of everything that happened to me from when I can when I started reading. So if you told me something, if I read something, or if I saw a TV show, or if something happened, even if I really don't want to remember it, it's somewhere in my memory bank. And a lot of stories I was told as a kid were stories that I never read anywhere else and nobody else ever talked about. Uh, nobody ever talked about Miles Davis's time in Boston. Uh, I didn't. I didn't know that Count Basie, or Duke Ellington, or any of these other famous jazz musicians spent so much time in Boston. And had so many friends here, and had long residencies here, and used to stay at places like Mother's Lunch. I had no clue. And when I kept being told these stories about these legendary jazz clubs or all these uh, schools like Berkeley College of Music before it was Berkeley was called Schillinger House or Quincy Jones went to Schillinger House and he lived on Pembroke Street with his mom who was a seamstress. And I'm just sitting there looking like, wait, what? Quincy Jones used to live here? Or Sammy Davis Jr. grew up r right on this street. He used to live there, there, there. And I'm like, Sammy Davis Jr. didn't live in Boston. I never read that anywhere. But when I ask other people, yeah, he did. My, Martin Luther King Jr., I used to play basketball with him. Wait, what? 
I used to smoke, I used to smoke weed with Miles Davis right there. Like, wait, hold on. Are you serious right now? These are stories that I was told, and for the longest, I thought people were pulling my leg. Because, you know, you tell the little kid anything, he'll believe it. It wasn't until I reached adulthood that I discovered through research and asking people that, no, these weren't lies, people weren't joking with me, these things actually happened. But see, it was easier for me to accept the idea of being told stories without having any actual proof or any way to verify the story because that's the way things were back in the days. That's how information was transmitted. Uh, when I was a kid, I learned about a lot of, a lot of the famous basketball players and, and football players and, and artists and musicians through this same method. I learned about Herman Helicopter Knowings and what he was doing at the Rucker from second and third hand accounts because he wasn't on television. There was no film of him. He wasn't in the newspaper. At least not in Boston newspapers. I would hear stories about Joe the Destroyer Hammond. I didn't see a picture of Joe the Destroyer Hammond until I was old enough to steal or read copies of Slam magazine. But I had heard about him for years. But I had to go off these stories. And to me, that wasn't a big deal. It's just the same way that coming up, I was told about, you know, legendary jazz musicians like Hillary Rose. Uh, Hillary Rose was one of the most famous and influential uh, guys on the Hammond keyboard. He died without having any recordings. And his career... It spanned between 1935 and 1962. He worked multiple clubs all up and down my neighborhood, which is again the South End Law Roxbury. So he had a career that spanned over 25 years, and no one can find a recording of his. But if you ask legendary jazz musicians, they studied him. They grew, they grew up listening to him. They even sessioned with him. They jammed with him. And they cite him as an influence. So you have to go off of their word. And that's no problem because he's not alone. There are countless musicians and artists who were recognized as greats and none of their works survived. Also tie this into something that I'm doing right now. Um, if any of you have been following me on Instagram or Twitter, I'm currently in the process of doing something called the Boston Legends line. And in the Boston Legends line, what we're doing is we're um, going back and telling the story of a bunch of uh, Boston area athletes and also just regular people who did legendary things. We're going to get to that later. But the thing we're going to start with, it's something that people can wrap their brains around, wrap their minds around, and see tangibly, again, this is a big issue, is um, we're retroing jerseys. And of the jerseys we retroed, we started with uh, the 1978 to 1989 stretch because it's closer and it's something that people can latch on to now and it's easier to tell the stories so that people can understand. So the first thing we're doing is um, 
were retroing Patrick Ewing's old high school jersey from when he played at Cambridge Rangers Latin. The next thing we're doing is we're retroing uh, Reggie Lewis's jersey when he went to Northeastern University between 1983 and 1987. And the last one we're doing is we're retroing uh, Dedrick Irving's jersey when he went to Boston University between 1984 and 1988. Now, you're thinking, you know, that's pretty recent. But here's the thing. Um, Basketball, especially high school basketball, wasn't the same animal it is now. This is before the AAU explosion and sneaker companies came in with the corporate money. So Patrick Ewing was fairly uh, still a local story, even if he was a national draw or, or a national name as far as high school basketball is concerned. There was no ESPN for him to be plastered on 24-7. You know, there was no huge sports network. You know, and to to spread his name. If you were somebody who was a sports junkie, you definitely knew who Patrick Ewing was. But it wasn't until he appeared in Sports Illustrated and then later ended up in the Big East on uh, national television where his fame spread. It wasn't the case like it wasn't that that wasn't the case in 1978. So that's why we decided to focus on that um, on that era again. We had Reggie Lewis, who went to Northeastern between 1983 and 1987. Not a big national uh, story. Wasn't on national television unless his team made it to the NCAA tournament. And usually, if they played, it was a first round game, and they were usually and they usually got bounced early, or they won one or two games over their four year stretch and advanced. But he still wasn't a big huge player like some of the other guys in bigger conferences. And then you have Dedrick Irving, who used to clash with them in a conference called the ECAC, the East Coast Athletic Conference, I believe. And they didn't have a lot of televised games unless you were in Boston and or New England. And you can't go on YouTube and find Dedrick Irving going up against Reggie Lewis. Matter of fact, the only way you can find any Reggie Lewis footage is because of the documentaries that were made about him recently since he passed away in 1993. And the anniversary documentaries that followed that. That's the only time you see any Reggie Lewis footage. And imagine the lengths people had to go to just to cull together that footage. Now, if you go on YouTube and look up Dredrick Irving, you're going to find nothing. If you didn't live in Boston or the metro Boston area... You didn't see Dredrick Irving play. I could tell you about him. You could look up his stats on uh, college basketball reference. They're eye-popping. They're impressive. But unless you saw him play, you have no idea how good he was. So we wanted to tell these stories because we're people that witnessed it. We're people that were influenced by him. When I saw Kyrie Irving play for the first time, it reminded me of seeing his dad, the way he handled the ball, created space, and shot. That's not the case for everybody. Unless you lived in Australia and you saw him play pro, you have no idea what Dredrick Irving looked like when he was playing ball. And we would like to create that story, and we would like to, we would like to recreate that whole experience for people who didn't get to experience it firsthand. Now, it was easier to do 
since we it was more recent time there are color pictures that exist a lot of black and white ones still uh there are color pictures color pictures that exist there is footage whether or not we actually have a hold of it or any we know there's actually footage um but that's not the case for what we want to do going forward one of the things we want to do is uh we want to highlight uh something called the boston six in 1972 the boston shootout was created to showcase uh these six incredible ball players that came from the metro boston area in the city because we felt like they could beat anybody anywhere the nature of high school basketball and this is pre again this is pre aau being a powerhouse and the NCAA, you know, making so much money that it could just dictate everything. And the sneaker companies just having sway over everything. That we could create a tournament. At the time, there were no tournaments. There were individual games. There was a Dapper Dan Round Ball Classic that existed starting in 1965 in Pittsburgh. Uh, I think Sonny Vaccaro had a part in. There was no tournament. So when the Boston Shootout was created, you know, it was partly by... People involved with the Celtics, community leaders uh, centered in Roxbury, uh, somebody who worked at Coca-Cola, and um, one of the guys who ended up becoming either the first or the second black refs in the NBA period from Boston. Huge story. No documentary. Nothing. Uh, Even to this day, which is mind-blowing. And we really wanted to tell this story because we feel it's crucial not only to Boston history, but basketball history and sports history in America in general. But here's the um, impasse or here's the challenge. In doing this, let's say we retro three jerseys from recent times. Let's say we want to retro six jerseys from the late 60s to the early 70s some from schools that don't exist anymore now not only do we have to find pictures most of them are going to be in black and white of these high school jerseys so we know what the number is and we have an idea of what the lettering looks like or what the what the mesh looks like if it's mesh uh now We have to figure out what color they are. And how do you figure out the color of a high school jersey from a high school that no longer exists? Well, you have to find people that either went there, played there, or worked there. And it's not like schools that don't exist anymore have trophy cases. So how are you going to find a replica jersey or an old jersey from a school that doesn't exist? Maybe they're Letterman jackets. Maybe they're huge. Maybe they're uh, Facebook groups. You gotta hope. You gotta do the groundwork. You gotta get your hands dirty. You have to pull up your sleeves. You have to get in there and you have to figure all these things out. You gotta get the permission. You have to do this. You have to do that. But basically, you have to rely on what? Oral history. You think there's Super 8 footage floating around? 
I wouldn't bet on it. You think it'll be in color? I wouldn't bet on it. You think it's still surviving? Uh, why hasn't it seen? Hasn't seen the light of day yet? Oh, possibly because nobody decided to do a documentary yet. Well, we picked the right things to document and cover. Yeah, we made it easy on ourselves. But yeah, the reason why this is such a challenge and it's something that needs to be done is because we're going to tell the history of our city that is gone untold. And it's a harrowing experience. It's a challenge. But it's going to get done because it needs to get done. Now, let's talk about music. Well, one thing I don't want to talk about is the whole um, situation going on with he who will not be named. Fuck it, Kanye West. Um, I just feel like that guy takes up too much of the news cycle. One of the reasons why I created a podcast like Dart Against Humanity is so I can avoid having to talk about the same shit everybody else is talking about because in the world of content there's just a glut where people are like oh here's my take on this thing here's my take I just don't feel like I'm that important where I need to talk about something that's been exhausted and as brilliant as I supposedly am I don't think my take is going to be that mind-blowing or that crucial compared to what somebody else is and someone else is going to care enough to discuss it okay so let me break this down i don't give a fuck i don't care if you have a good take and you say something that's worthy i'll rt it i'll agree i just i i feel like my voice could be better served covering something else or something else i'm actually interested in Oh, yeah. So that's that in regards to what I want to talk about in that space. So um, one of the other things is I've spent a lot of time going through just film. I'm enamored with a certain era and a certain aesthetic of film. Um, I fell in love with movies when I was a kid. One of the things that helped helped me to do that, well, of course, being a kid, broke. We didn't have t- any choice in channels. You had the channels on UHF or VHF. The UHF channels usually came in clear. If there was a movie, whether there was a monster matinee, creature double feature, kung fu theater... Um, if they were playing the fucking uh, the beach movies, because every summer we're approaching summer right now, spring going to summer, so we knew that things were changing when school was about to end in Boston, because the local channels would change their programming. Uh, they would start playing this TV show Gidget, which starred a young Sally Field. That's when we knew. Um, the Banana Splits would start coming on. The Monkeys. 
they start showing the monkeys. As soon as these shows hit those channels, we knew it's summer. Uh, they started showing the beach movies. Uh, the beach movies are Beach Blanket, Bingo, How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, um, movies of that nature, Annette Funicello, Frankie Avalon. So, uh, when the summer hit, everything changed. And one of the key things was we got to watch more movies because now school's out. And during this stretch, I would really watch all type of films before I really got any type of taste. Another thing that really helped me out was aside from that, aside from the the movies that came on television was, um, in the era of pre-cable, yes, there was a time when there wasn't cable, everybody didn't have cable. There was this thing called, this phenomenon called pay TV. In Boston, we had a pay TV service called um, Star or Star View or Star Case. So there was this signal that was beamed from the top of the Prudential and you had to get a receiver box. You got this receiver box and you were able to get movies or movie channels right in your own home. But what ended up happening was um, Boston's a really smart town. And um, so let me explain to you what's happening in the Boston metro area for those who don't know where it's slow. We have this thing called MIT. So right over the bridge, um, Cambridge. Uh, Central Square, right? Then we have this other place called Harvard. Harvard, a little further down, uh, Harvard Square. Then in the city, we have this thing called um, Northeastern University. Um, you know, they're engineers, you know, smart people to go to Northeastern. It's pretty big, pretty big school. And then right next to that, there's this other school called the Wentworth Institute of Technology. Um, I don't know if a lot of you have heard of Wentworth, uh, but pretty good school, pretty good school. And also there's another communication school right there in Boston called Emerson. So you have Emerson. Um, I think you're starting to see the point. So a lot of people started doing something called kit bashing and jury rigging, and they started making their own receivers, illegally receiving to transmissions from the top of the Prudential so they could all watch films in their own homes too. For the free. So what happened is, young me, around 1979, 1980, 1981, I got to have my mind blown by films that I really shouldn't have saw at my age. Um, I saw a movie called The Man Who Saw Tomorrow, which predicted the end of the world. And I don't think a kid in kindergarten, two or first grade should have seen that. When you have Orson Welles narrating the world ending, I think that's going to affect most kids. I, I don't know how many kids are going to be. There weren't a lot of kids that were okay that went to see the Transformers and saw the Transformers all get murked. And, you know, Ironhide and... You know, all these guys just get shot in the chest. Uh, the death of Artemis Prime when he just went gray and his eyes rolled to the back of his head. 
that was a tough one, right? Yeah. Um, my little brother saw The Shining when he was still a baby. Yeah. I think that was that that that's a step above. That's that's something different. Yeah, that's gonna affect you. Most definitely. I mean, there are kids that cried at the screening of um Infinity War. Sure. They had to be consoled in the hallway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Not the same as watching an R-rated movie when you're four. Just not. Just saying. But yeah, this is how I fell in love with movies. I watched a lot of films that I remembered from 1980, 1981. The first time I saw Superman, Superman 2, was on this um, Star Starcade channel. Uh, I saw an animated film called Grendel, Grendel, Grendel. It introduced me to the epic of Beowulf. Which my brother pointed out to me was partly in one of the um, Groyer's World Encyclopedias that my mom bought. So I started reading it. And my brother's like, um, you're reading Beowulf. Why are you reading Beowulf? You're six. It's because I saw a cartoon and I didn't realize that kids don't read Beowulf. So there was a whole bunch of stuff that I was exposed to at a young age, being that I had this movie channel. And it, what it did, it kind of, and having an older brother that's six years older than you and an older sister is eight years older than you, it kind of bumps you up. So I didn't really like stuff that most kids liked as far as movies are concerned. I remember when the Goonies, I remember the Goonies and me thinking the Goonies was corny. To this day, I hate the Goonies. And most kids, they loved it. And when I tell people I couldn't stand it, they stare at me like, what the hell? You have no soul. What the hell's the matter with you? Well, it might have something to do with the fact when I was a kid, I saw um, Escape from New York. Well, most people were watching, you know, well, I was actually watching Sesame Street and all the other stuff and um, Electric Company and Vegetable Soup, which was another educational show that really slept on, came out around the same time. I watched Escape from New York with the Duke and Snake Plissken. And Snake Plissken was the first time I recognized what an anti-hero was. My brother explained to me the concept of the anti-hero. And then in 1982, I read one of my brother's friend's copies of God Loves, Man Kills, which is also piece of literature that most six, seven-year-olds shouldn't be reading. Blew my mind. Uh, I saw a Ralph Bashke film called American Pop around the same time, too. Completely changed my idea of what animation was or what it could be. So... That affected me going forward tremendously. And the era of I'm talking about as far as music, I mean, as far as like film is concerned, I think that it's basically a stretch of time that I tend to call the golden era of the music video because it was directly influenced by the early days of skate videos. I'm talking about like the uh, the Powell Peralta 
series, um, like the Animal Chin era, like that. So those skate videos, I think, heavily influenced um, going into era of music videos later, and the early era of music videos, those those um, they sucked. People say they love '80s music videos; they were terrible. Do me a favor, man. Um, Patty Smythe featuring Scandal, The Warrior. Watch that video. Watch that video. It's a terrible video. The song? Kind of fire. The video? El Terrible. Um, ABC's Poison Arrow. Or The Look of Love. Tremendous songs. Videos are terrible. Flock of Seagulls, I Ran So Far Away. Tremendous song. Video is ass. Ass. Matter of fact, as amazing as the songs of the 80s were, uh, finding a good video from the 80s is they're far and few between. Um, Nick Kershaw's Wouldn't It Be Good? Was that a good video? I think it was inventive. Was it good? Is the question. Um... I think like one of the few maybe good videos of that era was uh, Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf. Was that even good? And think about how great um, Hall & Oates music was. Look at how horrible their videos were. Private Eyes. And they actually got a budget. Videos are horrible. One on one. Like, come on. Think about it. Rod Stewart had a budget. I think Rod Stewart probably... They actually put some effort to his videos. He had one video called Infatuation. It had multiple endings. It had an ending where he got the girl and an ending where he didn't get the girl. And it was actually shot by somebody who did movies. Go watch it now. Infatuation. Uh, you had uh, Steve Perry's Oh Sheila, which was actually shot like a fucking scene from a movie. Him and the girl on the stairs. You should have been gone. Um, but the point I'm making is that 80s videos, quality 80s videos are few and far in between. So when people tell me that they loved 80s videos, no, you love 80s music and you just overlook the fact the videos are terrible. Even um, Hey Mickey by Tony Basil. Amazing song. The video's trash. The dance moves are good, but look at the video. The video is low fucking quality. No one cared. You just, any visual almost would have worked. I mean, okay, early rap videos. Run DMC, you talk too much. Has anybody seen this video? Rockbox was, I think Rockbox is, is great. King of Rock is great. You talk too much. That is a quintessential 80s video. Nobody talks about it. There's a reason why nobody talks about it. Because the video is fucking trash. Song, iconic, legendary album, video, trash barge. Um, but for me, what I've called, I've actually lectured about this, the era, the golden era of music video, I used to say was 1994 to 2000. And I include not only indie, rock, uh, grunge, electronica, which is what the name for it was. Um, you know, going forward, 1994 to 2000, 
amazing videos. This is the era starting when um, MTV started crediting the directors, which was huge. Because you started seeing who was making these videos. And these people started getting work in film and television later. And it's an amazing crop. I've written about this. I think I'm going to um, address this even more in, in um, deeper detail later. But I've actually dialed it back. Because when I think about it, I feel like this era wasn't just 1994 to 2000. I feel like it started in 1993. Uh, my 18th birthday, I remember watching 120 minutes on MTV. And there was a video by a group called The Breeders, Cannonball. And I remember watching this video and thinking, there are no fucking rules anymore. This video... As simple and as straightforward as it was, it wasn't pretentious at all, and it made me feel like I could make videos. It made me feel like I wanted to make movies. I look at videos like... Bull in the Heather by Sonic Youth. What the fuck is that video about? I like the way it looks. I love the song. It just draws you in. You watch it again and again and again and again. I don't know exactly what it is about that video, but it reminds me of those old skate videos from back in the day where they were making everything up on the fly and it just drew you in. Why? Not 100% sure. Look at videos like Pose Angry Johnny. There is an aesthetic to that video that falls in line with the stretch of independent film that came out. Just like with hip-hop, uh, I believe that there are errors um, in film, especially independent film. I think the first wave of independent film, which I guess you could call was like the golden era, like maybe the 86, 89 of independent film, it starts with... Um, Spike Lee, She's Gotta Have It, and Jim Jarmusch, Down By Law. I think that's like the sweet spot right there. Was that 1986? I think it like it kind of coincides with the golden era. You know, the first golden era. These are the movies that got people excited and journal and like journalists excited about this new wave, this new wave of young directors and them telling their stories. And it's crazy because both those films are black and white. But, you know, we jump ahead and it's like the second golden era, the second golden era, you know, we had that law in between, but we also had like um, that space between that built up. So you have 1990 and 1991, which builds up to 1992. And I feel like you jump right into that with um, the era where you have video movies like Slacker, you know, um, movies like Clerks. Uh Movies like um, Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. And, the, you know, like these movies, they really push everything forward as far as like independent film from that era. And just change everything. Where we get up to like Christopher McQuarrie, you know, making, making his movies and like changing everything with his dialogue. After Quentin Tarantino changed things with his dialogue. And then people just jumping from there and expanding on it, just like in the era of 1986 to 1987, when you have Rakim, Cool G Rap, Big Daddy Kane, Ice Cube, 
MC Ren, you know, coming out of the era of the Teela Rocks. And you got Chill Rob G and Lakim Shabazz and all these other people just doing amazing things lyrically. And then you come up through 1991 and all of a sudden you have a tretch. You know, I feel like it's analogous to what happened with rap is what happened with independent film. I feel like I'm rehashing. It's funny because I feel like I'm rehashing a lecture that I've done before that you haven't heard, but I've done. But again, this is one of the reasons why I'm so just passionate about film, I guess. And if any of you have read um, Poisonous Paragraphs leading into Bastard Swordsman, these are blogs I wrote. Um, I used to do breakdowns. I had this um, thing called series called Dark Flicks. Where not only did I explain to you how to get the most out of your your Netflix um, account. Oh, and this, by the way, this goes back so far that these are the days when they used to mail you your videos. And how to uh, get your new releases on the day they came out. My key way was to hold on to your videos until Saturday. Mail them all at once. If you have three, if you have three things on the queue that are going to be new releases, you drop those in a mailbox on on Saturday, and you will get the new releases at the top of your queue when they drop in your mailbox that Tuesday. It always worked. I explained this in the blog. A lot of people thank me for it. Of course, you know everything switched up and it went to digital, and so. But one of the things that people don't understand is when it went to digital, there were a lot of titles that you can't, that you couldn't stream, that you could still get in the mail. You couldn't get any of the duck down visuals DVDs on Netflix. You still can't. There's a laundry list of films and DVDs that you could rent from mail that never had the opportunity to be streamed. And even to this day, as much as we rely on Netflix. It's a pain in the ass because there's so many great films and so many great movies that you're never going to be able to see. And I think this is part of the reason why you have the issues between them and Hulu and whatever other companies coming up. And this is it still just opens up the opportunity for piracy because we can't see the film even though we want to. Does everybody really want to pay $2.99, $3.99, $4.99 to see a movie? On YouTube, do you really want to do that? Come on. And another sad part is that there are a lot of films in Canada or the UK or France that, for whatever reason, which makes no sense, it's easier to get access to a film from Hong Kong than it is to get one from Canada. It just reminds me of back in the days when it was so hard to get an album from Canada. You had to essentially drive to Canada and buy a damn CD and bring it home. Because you were not going to be able to get it in America. <sighs> Frustrating. But yeah, I think about perfect example. I think about um, so there was a movie called Kid Dulthood. I believe Kid Dulthood came out what? 2008 maybe did it come out 2008 it never was released with an American distributor 
for years. Years. It didn't get a release with an American distributor until they made the sequel. Adulthood. Years later. Then all of a sudden it got an American distributor. By that time everybody had already seen it online. We went to torrent sites. We went to places that... Oh, and back in the days, nothing killed me more. People were so adamant about uploading video files that they did it in multiple pieces. Parts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, or 7, 8. And then there was a special thing where you could string together all the parts of the download and make it into one video file. Nobody does that anymore, thank God. Also, there are a whole bunch of download sites and streaming sites that, don't, that no longer exist. So that's not necessary. If you ever go back and look at old pirate sites, you will laugh your ass off at the, the different things they were using and the different methods they were using to try to pirate stuff. The, the speed of communications technology now is just insane. But the reason why piracy is so rampant is because even though the world is smaller... Why don't you just make it easier for commerce to work? Make it easier to buy these things. Make it easier to stream these things. We live in a world where we don't have to watch something or see something or hear something as soon as it comes out. Even though we're pressured to because we want to have the first take and we don't want anybody to spoil it for us. But we live in an on-demand society. We live in a world where we have something called plus or minus three and plus or minus seven in the rating system. That means we're given ratings for when things are DVR'd or recorded on whatever cable service or whatever network service you have. And if you watch it within three or seven days. Because the old Nielsen ratings rated when people ran to their TVs and watched something as soon as it came on. I can watch something anytime I want to. Matter of fact, I'll, Netflix has changed the game so much that sometimes I don't want to watch a show when it comes on. I want to watch three in a row. Imagine if I had to watch Lost in Space on Netflix and wait every week. I don't even know if it would affect me the same. Ozark. Imagine if I had to wait every week for a new episode of Ozark. Then conversely, I wonder... What if I had the opportunity to watch an entire series season of Banshee at once, like I do Daredevil? How would that affect the way I see the show? How would that affect the way I take it in? For me, I ask that same question with film. You know, a lot of times we're stuck in this thing where a movie comes out. We watch it in the theater. Then you got to wait for it to come out on DVD months later. Actually, there's the digital copy. Then there's the physical Blu-ray, which comes out weeks later. And then you got to wait more months before it ends up on cable. Or you got to wait even longer for it to end up on Netflix. Or you got to wait even longer or less time to get on Hulu because that's an exclusive with Hulu. Imagine if you eliminated all of that. There are a lot of independent films. I've spoken about this before. Where 
you can watch it at home the same time it's in the theater because it's an art house feature. This is what happened with the film um, The Sound of My Voice, which is easily one of my favorite um, cult films. And yes, I wrote a lot about cult films. Why? Because I could rent, was it five or six Netflix movies at once? And I would sit, and I would, my brother and I would watch these movies. As soon as we watch them, we send them back. We'd get some more, and we'd watch them. And my brother and I were so, such big movie heads. Again, I used to run a video store. I ran the video department at Tower Records. At the same time, I used to work on the on the um music floor. I was at Tower Records. We got paid every two weeks. I spent between 100 and 120 hours there every two weeks. I learned, I knew that store inside and out and I also memorized all the magazines. My checks were huge. I did, got a lot of overtime. Oh, and I used to close the store. That's when you really get to steal. That's neither here nor there. Thank you, MTS Incorporated. Uh, but the point I was making is I learned a lot about film. My brother and I learned it inside and out. And it turned me into an expert. And when you have this love of film and you want to explore and watch as much film as possible because it's something that you just is like your passion. It's super frustrating when you're not allowed to because of certain guidelines which opens up the opportunity for there to be piracy. You did it to yourself, homie. That's all I'm saying. But yeah, um, I think the nature of the cult film has also changed too. With the internet, the advent of the internet era, I say 1996, 97 on, it changed the nature of what a cult film was. In order to be a cult film back in the day, it had to be something that like the art house people talked about. You know, it was just amongst us. You had to go to certain theaters. You were, you were kind of a snob. You know, you only watch this. Or if you watched a movie, a, a studio film, you know, you only watch certain studio films. It was kind of like being a, a any kind of music snob. Art is art. Everything is everything. So, you know, you're going to find the same type of people praising and tearing down art in different ways or similar ways, regardless of the, um, regardless of what it is. But you had to be somebody that was in the indie film for the most part. But now with the advent of the Internet and real time social media and things like the Independent Spirit Awards being watched the way they are. I feel that the nature of the cult film isn't what it used to be. You had to do real work and real research to know what the independent films are. Now you could follow three different Twitter accounts and you could fake it. Good thing, bad thing. Whatever. I got to tell you, I do a lot and you know, it helps out, but I already had my ear to the ground anyway. But a lot of people can pretend now, you know, they can just pop up when the Independent Spirit Awards comes on and they're like, oh, I was looking forward to this. 
And a lot of people ape in mind what was hot or what people were talking about or what they saw somebody write about or what they somebody who pretends to care who gets the um Hollywood reporter, you know, raves about. And I got to tell you, this past year, there were a lot of independent films that everybody was buzzing about that they loved that I thought they didn't move me at all. They bored the shit out of me, actually. I mean, I understand people in Lady Bird just didn't do much for me. Not to say it's a bad film. Again, everything isn't for everyone. And also, there's a space where there are movies that most people just don't like or they don't feel that resonate with other people. You know, some people have their idea of what an inspirational film is and what they love. And for others, it's something else. I was up to 4 a.m. Well, I'm up to 4 a.m. anyway. But I was up to 4 a.m. watching one of my favorite films. I find this film as inspirational as other people find The Pursuit of Happiness. It's called Kill the Irishman. I love this movie. Uh, There's another movie that I watch along the same lines. Killing Them Softly. Easily one of my favorite cult films of the past 10 years. Hands down. Hands down. My boy Slane's in it. Um, He doesn't die. Yay. The dialogue in this film is one of the most quotable movies of the past decade. But if you haven't seen it, go see it. So yeah, this is what? Almost 50 minutes? It's time to finish this. Um... There's never going to be a sign-off. I'm just going to let you fucking know that. One.